Lonnie Graham is a photographer, installation artist, and cultural activist whose work attempts to redefine the role of the artist in society. He investigates methods by which the arts can be used to achieve tangible and dimensional meaning in people's lives. He is currently professor of visual art at Penn State University and executive director of the Photo Alliance in San Francisco. He is the recipient of many awards, including a National Endowment for the Arts Pew Charitable Trust Travel Grant. He was also awarded a Pew Fellowship, one of the largest grants for individual artists. Lonnie's work has been exhibited nationally and internationally. Welcome to the show, Lonnie. Okay, we're going now, right? (laughs) (laughs) When I met Lonnie at Pittsburgh Filmmakers, he was my teacher. And uh, at the time, he was working at Manchester Craftsman's Guild, which is an art center in Pittsburgh. And he invited me to come teach with him at the center, which was an amazing opportunity. We were working back, I think it was in the 90s when we worked together. And we had a dark room. We used film. So a whole different world. Let's start the interview by talking a little bit about your background. Where were you born? Where was I born? I was born in, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. And did you go to high school there? Did you? No, left immediately. I got even as a child, I understood. (laughs) Well, I I understood the imperative of getting out of Cleveland. So, actually, we had there was a lot of, I had a tumultuous uh, childhood, and uh, I left. I left Cleveland very early. I think I was maybe three or four years old and wound up in, you know, sort of traveling around the countryside, but eventually wound up in something called seldom seen Pennsylvania. And I really, I didn't realize that that was funny until I was standing in Oakland, California, talking to a bunch of book publishers and writers. And I was introduced as Lonnie Graham, the photographer from seldom seen. And everybody sort of broke into laughter. So, yeah, I so seldom seen in southwestern Pennsylvania. I, you know, went to school in this rural community and went to eventually I went to a small professional art school in Pittsburgh. And then I wound up going to the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design and eventually to the uh, San Francisco Art Institute with all these other sort of prominent photographers and other oh. other teachers. I, I just noted here in my notes, I have that you had private sessions with Robert Frank at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. Yeah, he, I was, so June Leaf was my drawing teacher in there in Halifax. And she was, of course, married to Robert Frank who would come down to the school periodically a couple of times he came down and showed his films and he would come down to pick up June. And we became close enough that they invited me to watch their house whenever they went to Florida, they went South for the winter and had the good sense to go South. It's and I, they wanted me to, you know, make sure that the pipes didn't burst in their little house. And that's how, I got to know Robert and June. And then I also have a note that you were the assistant to Larry Salton. Where where did that take place? So I left Canada and I went to the San Francisco Bay Area. And I, you know, after taking, you know, classes with a number of different people, 
I was talking to somebody this morning and I guess I hadn't explained that at that time, Angela Davis um, was teaching like kind of a social studies class at the San Francisco Art Institute. So she was my social studies teacher. Ansel Adams started the photography department at the San Francisco Art Institute. So he would stop, he would stop in periodically to see how things were going and to, you know, talk to the students. So he was, he actually came to my graduation. He sat next to me at my graduation, but Larry was there and he, he was, he and John Collier Jr. Who was a kind of visual anthropologist um, had a class that they taught together. So, Larry was at that time flying back and forth to Los Angeles and he was at the school, but you know, he was very active. He was doing a lot of the social, the social activism stuff, like doing billboards with Mike Mandel and I, they had already published their book, but they were very active in the community. So I would take over Larry's place and with John Collier. So there were, there were, I think at that time, Karen Finley was was in that class, and she's sort of notable for having gotten into a lot of mischief with the National Endowment for the Arts at that time. Um, but yeah, that was that was in the eighties that we did that, and then Larry eventually went to the um, California College of the Arts to teach with. Um, Jim Goldberg and Chris Johnson. And just in terms of um, what well, a couple of things, who are who are some of your favorite artists? Or when I was a youngster, my mother sent me to um, the Cleveland Art Museum. I'd go visit my mother every every year, and I'd I'd stay with them. And apparently my, my grandmother had sent my mother to take French lessons. And this, I found out later, was the reason that my mother sent me to the museum to do, to take drawing lessons. So every, you know, couple of days a week, Saturdays, I would go to the Cleveland Museum of Art. I would take these drawing classes, but I would wander, of course, you wander around this beautiful museum that they have in Cleveland. And I found myself in the print department, one staring at these photographs. One afternoon, it I guess it was one of the curators or the preparators came out and saw me with my nose pressed up against the glass and my big drawing pad tucked under my arm and invited me back into archives and gave me a little pair of gloves and presented me with the Stieglitz contact sheets and the Steichen contact sheets. And so there I was looking at these amazing, beautiful images that had, you know, been put away there in archives, the Paul Strand. And I had, so I'd been introduced to these, you know, this kind of traditional photography when I was very young. And at that time, I had already started to work with Polaroid. Uncle Floyd had brought home this Polaroid camera, and I had started to work with Polaroid. 
But of course, the quality was very different than it was that you could get with an eight by 10 or a four by five contact sheet. But I didn't quite. It was my goal at that time to try to make photographs as beautiful and with the, you know, acuity of those images that I had seen there in the museum. So early on, those were that's sort of the standard that I aspired to. And so as you develop, you know, new ideas, you get new tastes, you understand, you know, people's value because of their contribution at one level or another. So that I, I don't know if you were there, were you, were you there at Manchester whenever I did the, the living masters of photography series? So what eventually happened was I started to invite people from all over the United States. Bill Strickland, the guy that started Manchester, had something he called the Living Masters of Jazz. So I thought that in order to maintain the level of quality that was happening there in the guild that I, I wanted my students to be exposed to the same kind of mastery and inspiration that was happening in music i wanted to do that in the photo department so i started to invite like you know everybody that i was reading about so i invited you know deborah willis and carrie may weems and lorna simpson and i you know so you're asking who my favorite photographers were so every time i invited another photographer that was my (laughs) That was was my favorite photographer. So there were, you know, I have all these favorite photographers, you know, that so many of them were women. There was Pepona Surio, who, you know, came later. There was Laurie Novak and Linda Connor came. So, you know, Reagan Louie. There are all these people that came. So I tried to invite all of the people that had, you know, influenced and supported me during the course of my development. So they, I don't know if there was like one because there's so, you know, and even this, you know, the students, people that I met at the time that were students that, you know, wound up being people that I admired. And even now, you know, so many of my students are, you know, really, really remarkable individuals. Michael, you know, whenever I started to teach at the, San Francisco Art Institute, you know, a lot of the people that are, you know, that I worked with here in the East, you know, so many of them have become, you know, dedicated artists and, you know, just, you know, good, kind people. And that's, I think, what is most important, you know, that, of course, you know, their artistic mastery and their ideas and that kind of thing. But, you know, these young people now that, you know, that basically mean to do well in the community and help people as they develop and, you know, continue to want to contribute. Those are, I guess, the people that I hold in, in high regard. And now here we are. I had no idea that, you know, that you had, you know, had taken that and appreciated it to the point that you did. And now, you know, here you are, another favorite artist <laughs> of mine. Uh, thanks, Lonnie. <laughs> thanks, Shannon. 
Well, and, and in addition to photographers, I mean, are there other artists of different media that you like? For example, I love Demon Corn, or are there other artists that inspire you just that are non-photographers? Whenever, like I said, I was Brancouche, um, Constantine Brancouche, my friend Thad Mosley that works in Pittsburgh, still at 90 some years old, David Lewis was a great inspiration. Whenever I stood, you know, the people that, I guess the artists that people would re- sort of recognize would be, you know, like, like the, like I said, Brancouche. And whenever I was very young, standing in front of the, the Franz Klein and those abstract expressionists, I think I got the idea that that art was possible, that people could communicate ideas without language, that there were that strong emotion and passion was certainly not only achievable, but that one was able, like individuals, humans were able to to communicate those ideas basically, you know, just by, you know, using these different tools you know, painting or dance, even photography. So Rothko was very influential. He's one of my favorites also. Yeah. How about if we talk about some of your photo projects? Since you have, since you have okay. many, um, but it sounds like a recent one is the, a conversation with the world. If you, is that your most recent project? Well, when I, when I lived in, um, California, I, I, I was, I had the great fortune, don't ask me how this happened, of meeting some people that needed uh, a business part documented. So I did the, me and another, another good friend of mine at the time, Kevin Martin, and I photographed this, um, this business park and decided at the completion of that to embark on another project. This was 1985 or 1986, where we would go out into the world. And I loved talking to people. And I also loved photographing. So the idea was to go out into the world and talk to people and make photographs. And that's what happened. The conversation with the world ended a couple of years later because everybody that I talked to answered the questions in the same way. I kept asking people, you know, what was important to them and what, you know, I wanted to know about their families. And at that time I hadn't formulated the questions the way that I did whenever Dr. Wiley made these sort of beautiful suggestion about sort of having the standard list of questions that I would work from, which it, what I did later, but early on, everybody answered the questions the same way. And I thought it was a failure. I thought it was a stupid project. But after a couple of years, I asked myself, why are all these people answering the questions the same way? Maybe I should go back and talk to them again. Because everybody keeps answer in the same way so they so i did and it turned it turned out to be 
a great kind of template to measure the course of our humanity. I mean, if you, you know, if I'm going to Mexico and I get an answer, I go to Japan, I get an answer, I go to Mali and get an answer. I, and everybody is basically telling me the same thing. If I can talk to imams and Buddhist monks, and if I can talk to nuns in the Himalayas, if all these people from different backgrounds and different religions are telling me that the important things in their lives are their families, that life and death are connected by this, this cyclical existence, that we're all in, endowed by our heritage from our ancestors. If everybody's telling me the same thing, then it turns out, I guess, that it, it was sort of a valuable tool. So to sort of illustrate our, our bond, as not only as a culture, but, you know, but as a species. So that was that. And that's, I guess it's sort of coming to a conclusion because I'm completely out of Polaroid film. I just found some on eBay last week and I, it was ridiculous. It was like $10 wow. a sheet. So this is the same yeah. stuff that we used to use yep. back in Manchester. You know, we used to buy it by the case and, work with the students. And the reason I like the Polaroid, one, you know, is it's, I started working with it in 1960. And another one is that whenever I photograph these people, I give them, I make the gift of the Polaroid to them, but then I can, it's negative film. So I can take the negative back and process the negative and then I can make a, make another print, but that's gone. And I, it's hard for me to relate to people without actually giving them something i don't want to just sit there and take up all their time and take up even though people are generally very happy to share i like to make sure that i you know give a gift or something so that project could be over except some people have suggested that i do it you know just concentrate here in the united states and do it digitally with modern technology i may try but we'll see what and happens. And a little bit more with this um, show, you have an exhibition, I'm assuming, of the photographs. And then do you include information that the answers they gave you to your questions or how does the exhibition work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll either do quotes. There's a little, there's a, a beautiful gallery in Florence that mounted an exhibition and of this work. Just, you know, here, I guess it's still up. This is March 2020 so I think it's still there they yeah they'll put up the the pictures I usually print them as large as I can about four by five feet and then I'll put up the either you know short quotations sometimes I'm able to exhibit the entire interview but that's rare um and it depends on the place. I mean, it real. It's it's been remarkable. The Meg Schiffer at the San Francisco Art Commission asked me to do a conversation with San Francisco. That turned into a conversation with Calgary, which turned into a conversation with Aulu in Finland, which eventually, you know, these people in 
New Zealand in Christchurch asked me to come down to, to work, to do a project there. So it's been amazing the, so that, you know, in every place responds in a different way by, you know, showing the photographs or I work with the community in a different way. But the, the aim is always to try, you know, with these different communities to contribute in a substantive way to some kind of tangible outcome. In Finland, we were able to sort of stem xenophobia because people had been afraid or, you know, they tried to hurt like a lot of the immigrants that were, that were coming. So that we curtailed that activity. In New Zealand, people had trepidation about functioning and working in their community. And the polyphony project is still going on. You can look at their website and it's, you know, they still, they adopted the project and they made it theirs and it continues. In Calgary, I worked with the, with the indigenous population and we were able to talk about, you know, culture and that seemed to work. So yeah, we put up the words and the pictures depending on what, what the community And are they always needs. black and white or are they color sometimes? It's Polaroid, so okay. it's always black and white. And then how about other, um, I know you've traveled a lot and done a lot of photo expeditions in other countries like Nepal, Tibet, Ethiopia. Um, are those, I assume those are projects that are different from a conversation with the world, but I may be wrong about that. No. Um, you know, I try to... You, you know, you're working with three or four different th things at, at once. So if I'm in New Guinea for one thing, then I'm going to, you know, I'm bringing a camera and I'm going to bring the film and I'm going to do like as many projects as I can do while I'm on the ground. In nowadays in Kenya, in northern, in southern Sudan, in northern Kenya, in that Elimic Triangle up there, I'm, you know, that it's, uh, I'm working with... Uh, amazing individual Billy Capua who is making these sort of wonderful introductions with the Turkana and the reason that this is I was introduced to I was introduced to this area by Jane Baldwin and many some years ago who had been working in southern Ethiopia about a project that has to do with these large corporations and governments building dams on the Omo River. So now the Omo River feeds into Lake Turkana. So if the Omo River is dammed up in order that they can grow corn or something, it, it completely disrupts the sort of natural flow of the river and the flooding and the, 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 the ability for the indigenous people there to grow their crops and harvest in the way that they had been for who knows how long. Also, the flow of the river into Lake Turkana, if it's dammed up, of course, the lake begins to dry up so that people can't fish there. The size of the fish that, you know, these freshwater fish that were not normally there, you know, that'd be like, you know, three or four, like three feet long. I saw, you know, very large, these perch that would grow. But now 
you know, those same fish are just tiny little, you know, maybe six or eight inches, 10 inches long because of the salinization, because of the salt that comes, that washes down from the mountains into the lake, the, the fish aren't able to grow as large. The large fish go to the bottom of the lake where, you know, it's almost unfishable. So the reason that this is significant to me is that it, Lucy, you know, Lucy, right? I mean, the sort of the, the ancient, our, yeah, yeah. one of our first ancestors. Okay. So, which kind of relates to the conversation with the world, because I always ask, what's the significance of the ancestors? So if we're looking at where we all came from as a people, as a species, a lot of people like to say that Lucy is one of our earliest ancestors who comes from this region. 250, 300 miles south is, was a, a discovery of the Turkana boy who is also, you know, millions of years old. In a few hundred miles south in, in the Oldavi Gorge, Louis Leakey made the discovery of this, you know, these early human ancestors. So, that are, you know, like millions of years old. So here we have a group of people that have been living in this region pretty much undisturbed for that have evolved from some of the original humans right because if you look at the way the Turkana live they're living you know a traditional lifestyle meaning you know they graze their cattle they walk from one place to another you know they walk from from northern Kenya into southern Sudan and back they'll walk east to west and they have a very traditional lifestyle so, and I, you know, I can describe it, you know, they use the skins to make their homes that they can, they're no, you know, they're nomadic, you know, and they pick, you can pick these things up in a matter of hours and sort of be on the move to wherever there's rain or new grasses. But when that, when that fails, they, what they tell me is that they can always go back to their mother. They can always go back to fishing at the Lake Turkana. But now that's failing. Because of climate change, it's difficult to graze their cattle the way that they used to. So basically, this lifestyle, their traditional lifestyle is disappearing. Nobody, Nobody cares. Nobody's listening. Jane, you know, she did a beautiful book a couple of years ago. And about, you know, about the people that live in the Omo River Delta. So I sort of continue to work with the Turkana in and around the Lake Turkana area. So that, I guess that's what I'm up to now. And are you showing the works? I mean, your photographs, are you showing them? Just about, mm -hmm. I'm just about finished. Um, the, the, the Dots Press in Seoul, near Seoul, Korea, is interested in publishing the book, you know, just to, which is, you know, the, the book itself is more of a eulogy. So I'm not necessarily doing the book for Western audiences. I'm, I, I wanted what I've been doing over the past few years is going back to that area, north to south, east to west, circumnavigating the whole region, talking to tribes and tribal elders about what they are interested in having the future understand about 
their existence. Yeah, yeah. Do you understand what I mean? So, you know, I'm asking them to make a make a statement about their lives now, how it is and how it has been. So that when people are able to see it in the future. And this is, you know, this it'll it should be published in in Turkana and maybe maybe Swahili, maybe in English. Just in order that people can kind of get the idea but the i you know but the the main the main thrust of the book is that it it stands as a document for and about the people that lived in that region and then how about if we talk a little bit about your installations since you've done several of them um well first of all i wanted to ask you how did you get into creating installations was there one particular thing or I, we'll talk about some of your uh, projects like my father's table and living in a spirit house but was there something that drew you to express yourself through the installation art yeah um oh dear well so i do a little there's a ted talk that so i talk a little bit about what what happened when i met this this fellow that i worked with there at manchester and he we through talking with him and through working with him in the community one day this you know because it all sort of happened very quickly i he helped me understand that what happens when when the ego is extracted from from art and the artist is able and capable of making and contributing work for and about the community with basically by saying at the time he told me that the work that he was producing was in order that people could understand the significance of the sites that we were documenting. So for me at that time, that made sense all the of all the traveling that I had done. It made sense of many, you know, many of the traditional forms of artwork that I had observed. It was very difficult for me to go into a traditional community and find somebody in a, in a small house that might have been made from grass or, or animal skin, stretching a canvas or, you know, or cutting in stone. I mean, that was done, of course, but it was, I couldn't find, I couldn't see, you know, how that was contributing in a substantive way to like a traditional way of life, to, to the way that we may have lived, you know, a long time ago. How did that get us from, from there to here, to where we are now? So, but what I saw was artists contributing to the society by making, you know, by making and designing houses, making and designing clothes, making uh, vessels to eat from, uh, making sculpture to address a deity. Uh, What I saw was artists working in an integral way with society to make a substantive contribution to advance the course of the society to contribute in a way that was that was accessible to people so that 
whenever I was asked by the the fabric workshop, by I think it was Carrie Weems at that time that invited me to do a collaboration there and to work with her on a couple of different projects. Whenever whenever I got ready to make my exhibition, I wanted everybody to be able to walk into the exhibition, to be able to use all their senses, you know, sight, smell, touch, to be able to relate on multiple levels, you know, in an emotional level on, I wanted to be able for people to be able to hear what was happening in the exhibition. And I wanted, I wanted there to be something in that room for everybody. So something was going to attack them. So I figured that the best way to do that was to build a little room. And I wanted to elevate my experience from, you know, my little house in seldom seen to the, to me, to the museum level, you know, you travel to Europe and you go to these museums, you go, you know, to these special places that are venerated and you see, you know, George Washington's boots and Napoleon's britches. And, you know, so I thought, you know, I think I'd like to show my aunt Dora's room and I'd like to show, you know, things that everybody can relate to that might be significant or special to people on on a lot of different levels so i did that installation and yeah that's what that's that so was just in terms one. of that one um my father's table can you give us some just tell us a little bit more about your father just so since i haven't seen the exhibit myself i've just seen photos online so yeah that's so that the Andorra's table eventually went. Deborah Willis invited me to put it at the Smithsonian. It was at the Smithsonian Institution. Then somebody, you know, saw it down in Washington and wanted me to do another piece, another installation, which is how these things seem to happen. So my dad was his memory was failing because of Alzheimer's. So I wanted to make. I wanted to take the lessons that he had taught me. And I, I, I mean, what's the repository for memory, right? Paper. So if you, you know, you want to take a piece of paper and you write something down so you don't forget it. So I embossed all of my father's lessons into these large pieces of paper. But as a metaphor, I had the paper disintegrate like my father's memory. So here I had done a piece about the spirit, which was, you know, my, my Aunt Dora. The next piece I did was about the mind, which is, you know, for my dad. So I built a room. My father, I took all my father's stuff and I put that into the museum, the table and the, the map so he could find out where I was in the world. So here was the living room and the dining room. So the next one was, so there was the mind and there was a spirit. So the next one would have to be the body which is where the African-American Garden Project came from. So now we've got the mind and the body and the spirit. We got the living room, the dining room, and the kitchen. So by now, my, the, the reason I'm doing this stuff is because I'm trying, to, I'm trying to establish a method for modern artists, a way that we can work as modern artists as we find uh, re reciprocity 
and resonance in 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 the work that we do you see so i'm working i'm working in the field and i'm working in the museum or in a gallery or in some other kind of a controlled space so what i'm saying is that as a modern artist we use we use the world as a as our palette we use the resources that we have at hand we have the resources that we that, that are here in the community we use those to to activate an idea or a purpose mm-hmm. you see what i mean we can we use we use libraries we use the you know social centers we can use we can use the museums we use poets we can use writers we use dancers and musicians we work together to 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 contribute back to the society and back to the culture in a way that's accessible for people to we give people something that they can relate to the modern artist has the capacity to be able to use the the his surroundings and his community as a resource. So that's what I'm trying. That's what I was trying to do. That's what I had been trying to do with all those installation projects, have something in, in a controlled space, but then have it resonate with something that was going on outside in the community with the African-American garden project. You know, we, we built another garden in Kenya. We built gardens around in the community because we were talking about food with a home in the homeless, I, I, we did the gallery exhibition where, you know, I put my house, my little apartment. And out in the community, we addressed issues of homelessness. So, you know, every time I did one of these installations, we did the acknowledgement and memor- memorialization project. We talked about, you know, the contribution of our ancestors. So every and you know we used schools and we used museums we every time we did one of these projects we did something out out in the community that would that would serve we used the we used all of these kinds of installations as uh as a as a kind of you know another kind of a resource it was all part of our our panoply our our and then related to that, um, can you tell me a little bit more about the Project Home in North Philadelphia, which um, sounds like it ended up being a mediation park? Oh, meditation. Sorry. Yeah, meditation. That was. It's, sorry. It's. I guess <laughs> That's what I said online. Typo. Typo. <laughs> so, yeah, John, Lorreen Carey, who's so an award-winning writer. Uh, actually, Robin Redmond, who actually worked at Manchester as well. I don't know if you knew Robin, but she went on to work at something called the Fairmont Park Art Association with a woman named Penny Bach. And they worked at their uh, Fairmont Park and invited myself and John Stone and Laureen Carey, who was a writer, who is a writer. John was sort of this really inspired, masterful sculptor and architect and we worked over the period of about 10 years to get this thing ready which had you know because we had to talk to architects and planners years of community work i did i did a piece inside what was you know one of the old church rectory buildings 
so we had a, a, a community resource center where we built uh, an office for the, you know, these young, the, many of the elderly people in the community were complaining because they were nervous about going outside because there, there were so many young people that were getting into mischief. So I trained the young people to work movie cameras and recording equipment, but the only way that they could use it was to go and talk to the old people and collect their stories. And then they could use the cameras as much as they wanted to. So the old people got used to looking at the young people and the young people got used to sitting and being quiet and listening to these, the stories from the old people. And all of that went into an archive there in the project, in that project home space. Why, so that, that was all being done while this sort of Gazebo. The mediation you know, slash meditation. <laughs> it looks like part. a big gazebo. Yeah, the me- yeah. the mediation meditation space was built in in that area. So yeah, so that was that was that. But John and I went on to do this other kind of amazing thing in Cincinnati, which was we were addressing is these. Um, his mom was a sharecropper, so we built this large sort of basket that it was like it was a room but it looked like a very large basket a cornucopia you know that you could walk into and inside this thing were just every everything that you could imagine from all these places around the world that farmers had made that were able to sell because that's the plight of the sharecropper in his particular instance his mom and dad weren't able to sell the stuff that they grew so we wanted to build a place where people could buy, you know, bring the stuff and sell their food and then get the money and take it home. So that was at the at the Cincinnati Museum. So that was. And then what are you working on so, now or what are some of your next upcoming projects on the horizon? The, uh, I'm in the I'm in the middle of the uh, mm-hmm. that Turkana thing. So I'm sort of trying to finish that up. And I guess, you know, just sit around. <laughs> Coming to San Francisco soon, hopefully. <laughs> so we can meet up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. There's the photo alliance. There's that. That, that, okay. So Ansel Adams, back in the 60s, started this thing called the Friends of Photography down in Carmel. Later, it moved to San Francisco, and it was taken over by a guy named Andy, Andy Grunberg. And sadly, it, you know, it bought a building and amassed a massive amount of debt, and Ansel passed away. And the Friends of Photography was left with, you know, a big problem. So they finally figured out a way to settle the debt, and there was a little bit of money left over. So couple hundred thousand dollars so in 2003 2002 i got a call from one of the board members who was envisioning sort of carrying on you know the friends of photography wanted to call it photo friends and you know sort of move it into the future and i i said photo friends and she said yeah oh no yeah we could spell it you know (laughs) ph like you know yeah oh gosh 
photo PHR. And I said, so your initials would be, would be PP. And she said, she said, yeah. And I said, who, who wants to belong to like a PP organization? And she said, well, what do you suggest? And I said, well, I said, what are you going to do? I said, what's the, you know, what's going to happen? And we talked about this alliance of individuals around the Bay Area. At that time, there was Rayco and there were, you know, the, 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 the San Francisco camera work and the San Francisco Arts Commission and all these. And I said, so you want to build like an alliance of, you want to have all these different projects going on with these people around the Bay Area. And she said, yeah, isn't that exciting? And I said, well, yeah. I said, you want to, you want a photo alliance? And she said, yeah, let's call it photo alliance. <laughs> and I said, okay. She said, do you want to run it? And I said, no, <laughs> no. So we talked about it some more and I thought, well, maybe I do. So I went out and Paul Sachs, you know, gave us a great generous donation as usual. And, but I couldn't, I couldn't, the Bay Area was at that still, time. Still is, Lonnie. Really <laughs> so, yeah, not hasn't changed. So I, I came back and tried to figure out what to do with myself here in the East. But then recently, uh, Tom Sempery retired from being, because he, he had taken up the mantle, but he retired of last year. So Linda Connor called me and asked if I wanted to run the Photo Alliance again. And I said, okay, let's see what we can do. I, so, I, I related to that. Yeah. I joined your email list. So I, I volunteered to help. So let me know <laughs> if you need help on any projects. <laughs> Oh my gosh, thank you. I'm gonna I have the time. I'm gonna call so. you. <laughs> it's all good. Good timing. Oh. <laughs> oh, this is perfect. Cause this is wonderful. Cause we're trying to archive the for the past, you know what, 15, 18 years or something, they've done these amazing lecture series and workshops and they've been busy. So and these the incredible photographers have have you know come to present like you know the top the top photographers in the world. So there's this whole archive of uh, lectures that have been. Yeah, no, I'm happy to help. I'm not, to I'm not joking. To do with. So, okay, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm um, me and also I'm related serious. to just Manchester Craftsman's Guild, I believe uh, Bill opened one in uh, a branch in Hunter's Point. Are you involved in that at all? No. But that was whenever I first got there back in, you know, 1987 or 88 or whenever it was. I, that was the first thing I said to, to him. You know, I said, Bill, you know, I used to live in California. In, there's Marin County. They've got a lot of money. The disparity between, like, wealthy people and people that don't have anything is huge. You should start one of these things in California. And he said, <laughs> yeah. he said I got to get this one right. So, but however, you know, years later, you know, he did, he went to, he went to San Francisco and I saw him a couple of months ago and he suggested that I go there and, you know, introduce myself and sort of start discussions. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but. <laughs> well, I think he started a lot of uh, different branches of Manchester, hasn't he? Even he internationally did. Did. or they just did. nationally? They franchised. They went all over the place. I'm not sure exactly everything, that, yeah. but, I, but I do think he's there might be one or two like outside the United States. Yeah. He's an... Which is an amazing thing. So 
I was happy to be able to contribute. Yeah. And make that, you know, the edge and you helped to help make that place, you know, uh, not only a, a national model of arts education, but it became a Harvard case study for for educators. Yeah, it was an incredible so place. It, and for, just for our listeners who don't know, I mean, we had there are, we, was a jazz series there. I think there still is. And you know, a lot of the famous jazz musicians over the years have been there. I got to see Dizzy Gillespie there. And we had art shows of, you know, student art staff art visiting artists it's just an incredible place and it was there to help students um, be exposed to art in the community and it just it, it really is an, a phenomenal place it was to to the idea that bill had was to to balance like a vocational and technical school with art and culture and have one inform the other so that you know, everything that was taken in in terms of resources on the vocational side was able to support the nonprofit side. So that that's what was, you know, sort of unique about his institution. So that it got funded by Ford and, you know, all so many different sponsors. I was just looking at my notes and uh, you, I was, you worked on that book with David Lewis about Thaddeus Mosley, and I'm hoping to interview him on the show, so... He just had a birthday. Yeah. But he's, yeah. I mean, he'd started something called the urban, the UDA. Um, So the UDA has done, you know, they've redesigned cities all over the world. So David's been really, he's such a remarkable Um, man. He's, He's such a sweet man. And we've had incredible adventures. David and I traveled to South Africa together and Mexico and, it's been really wonderful. And his contribution, I'm not sure that people will understand his contribution to the to that region. And Thad, Thad just had a show in New York and had a beautiful review written about his work. So finally, after you know what you know, working for he's amazing 80 years. Going back to what you were saying about David and, and the impact he made, do you want to talk a little bit about that? About well, in, in terms of me and my own personal development, I mean, he, you know, he he was able to expose me to to much of the culture that you know that was there in Pittsburgh. He made that kind of a contribution through the course of his generosity uh, over across the world. Like I said, he had an idea that you know people be able to live in these you know communities that were that were about people that were more about people and less about designers and urban planners that you know where people could live comfortably and have access to the facilities that they needed he was and as an artist he you know came from south africa he renounced uh his citizenship to that country when he learned exactly what apartheid was and moved to england and He took up with Terry Frost and a a group of artists that lived in a little enclave uh, there in England. Um, So, you know, and then eventually came to the United States to work at the Carnegie Mellon University and, you know, had had a lot to do with planning Pittsburgh. He worked in, you know, Michigan when he was younger. And then eventually the UDA took off and he started to work in a lot of cities around the world. 
all the time, uh, you know, working himself as, as an artist on his, on his own work. He did one of the last, he did the last book about Konstantin Brancusi. Oh. He went to interview Brancusi in his studio while he was still alive and made a lot of photographs with a small camera that he had. And, and he's he extremely prolific. I mean, it's just incredible. So, yeah. Yeah. He's Amazing. still working. All right, well, we'll be in touch because I definitely want to want to talk to him. How did you meet him, by the way? He walked into, he and Thad walked, Thad, I knew Thad from, you know, being around in Pittsburgh. And he, they walked into Manchester one day and sat down in the office and said that they were looking for uh, a photographer to, you know, to work on this book. And I said, well, you know, do my best and see if I can find somebody. <laughs> and they started to laugh. <laughs> I didn't know they were talking about me. And you end up at Manchester. How did you get connected to Bill? That's a curious story. That my friend, what I guess it started when I left California and back in the mid 80s after I did that, started that conversation with the World Project. I wound up back in Pennsylvania and to attend to my relatives. And I basically didn't have. I didn't have a job or anything. I had a nice car, but I didn't have a job. So, and I had to, you know, try to find things to do to put gas in the tank so I could get around. But my friend of mine, uh, well, actually I was in the, I was in the back. I was in the garden. I was growing strawberries. The phone rang, answer the phone. It's Pennsylvania Council for the Arts. They want me to come and make a presentation to their arts and education conference that was happening in Harrisburg and after confirming that they had the right Lonnie Graham because I didn't believe him I managed to get over there to make a presentation and I met Kimberly Camp who would later become the head of the experimental gallery while it was at the Smithsonian Institution who would eventually go to build the the African-American Museum in Detroit, who would eventually become the president of something called the Barnes Foundation here in Philadelphia. And you, you, you know, if you don't know anything about the Barnes Foundation, it was started by Albert Barnes back in the early part of the last century. It is the repository for the largest collection of impressionist artwork outside of Europe and is the seat of a great deal of controversy. But we can talk about that some other time. But Kimberly, since we had made friends there, invited me to Pittsburgh with Dr. Grace Hampton, who was at that time working for the National Endowment for the Arts, and they needed a ride over to Manchester. So I drove them over there. And at that point, she introduced me to Bill Strickland, who invited me to work in the dark room and avail myself of the gallery and, you know, in his usual sort of generous self. And I did. So I started to work there, you know, trying to put a show together, but <laughs> kept being interrupted by these little kids that would come in <laughs> around three o'clock every day. 
And I'm going, I can never get this stuff done. So I spent more time working with the kids than I did. I never did have a chef, but I spent more time working with the kids than I did actually, you know, working on my own stuff. And then I saw where that was kind of important to them. So I started volunteering. I must have volunteered at Manchester for about a year. And then after that, they said, uh, you know, would you like to have a, a paying job if you can get enough students to come over? we can make sure that you have a paying position. And I said, how many students do you want? How soon do you need them? And so the population, those few kids that would come over after school went from, you know, eight to 10 kids up to about 300 and some. I have a couple ending questions for you just about life, since this is a show called Living Artists and is about life. Um, Do you have any particular inspirational place? It's sometime between, um, depending on the latitude, and but it's usually just after. It's right between like nautical dawn and an astrological dawn. It's a wonderful time. Just it's around the edge, right? Right before it comes up, and right before the star, the star goes yep. down. And then how about what just can you live the world without? Turn. Making art. Helping people. Contrib- well, you're def- definitely doing that one. Um, no question. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Thank you. Be yourself. Uncle Floyd would always just say, you know, when I was busy trying to overachieve, <laughs> you know, Uncle Floyd would say, boy, <laughs> I find Just that's easier yourself. to do as I get older. I don't know if you feel the same, but it's I'm not very freeing. Feeling. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it you is. like me or you don't? Which you just say, I just don't care. All right, Lonnie. It's well, thank you so much for joining me. It's yeah. been wonderful to catch up. Wonderful yeah. reunion. Please subscribe to the Living Artist Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to review the podcast and share it so that I can get more listeners and establish a larger Living Artist community.